This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Suddenly, Jacob realizes this God that he's wrestling could have incinerated him at any moment. And suddenly, the light comes on. And if you notice, at first, Jacob is wrestling the man to free himself, but now he's wrestling the man to keep hold of him. What happened? Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. What? Jacob now is holding on, but not, not to try to get free. Now he's wrestling to keep the man who could incinerate him at any moment from leaving. What's going on? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Today, we finish a powerful sermon, Jacob and Jesus. In this thought-provoking sermon, we'll delve into the heart of this encounter between Jacob and Jesus, and we'll discover that God, in his unending love, reaches out to us in our weakness. He is a deceiver, a manipulator. In fact, he even does it with God. He said, God, if you'll be with me and give me food and protection... And if you'll help me finally get back to my home and to my land and my people safely, then I'll make you the Lord my God. We're in the middle of our series titled Origin Stories, and you can hear the entire series wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines. But now we'll rejoin Jeff Fines as he finishes this message. Here's the million dollar question. Here we go. I love the, I love the end of this sermon. The last two parts, I, I'll tell you, it's sobering. Here's the million dollar question. How do you expect God to respond to a man who obeys at the risk of his own life, follows God's will, seeks him in prayer, and is at the end of his rope? How do you expect God to respond? He assaults him. He puts the hammerlock on him and lames him for the rest of his life. This is not the God of liberal religion. Oh, beneficent God who loves everyone, the perfect God of love who never harms anyone, but neither is it the conservative God, the God that says, if you do everything right, pray and read your Bible and go to church, everything will always turn out just the way you expect. You cannot tame God. You can't bind God to some contract that you come up with. You can't control him by some formula. You can't force your own personal covenant on him. You can't bind him to your rules. The real God reserves the right to clobber you and cripple you for the rest of your life if it means he can save you. We don't like to hear that, do we? Woo, I don't like this. I don't like, yeah. Who would make up a God like this? That's why C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia, remember Lucy asked, referring to Aslan, the Christ figure, is he safe? What's the answer? Safe? Who said anything about safe? He's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. On the other hand, as you go into John chapter 11, Jesus is approaching the tomb of Lazarus. He's going to use Lazarus' pain and suffering for eternal purposes, yes. However, when he sees the pain of his friends, Mary and Martha, in verse 38 of John 11, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. Remember what we've said before. Theologians are in a quandary over this because deeply moved 
means to snort or to bellow with anger, and it's usually used in association with animals. So why is Jesus so mad? The answer is he's mad at what sin has caused. He's mad at injustice, and so should we. And he's also sad at the thousands of funerals that he's not going to interrupt. But just because God uses our suffering and clobbers us does not mean in any way that he's detached from it. As with Job, he comes as the prevailing presence, as, as, as creator, comforter, and revealer, and is with us in our most serious time of need. But here's the reality. You still can't tame God because you, you don't know what God's doing. You want to. You can ask. But you don't know the mind of God in any situation unless he chooses to reveal it to you. And sometimes he does, and it usually comes through scripture and prayer and serious meditation, those disciplines in your life. That's why a person who never falls apart usually owns a Bible that is falling apart, right? So you're going to face the most intense times of your life alone, and you're going to find out if you have a relationship with God or not at that point. If you do, you'll weather the storm. If you don't, you'll crumble in anxiety and fear and doubt, and you'll go from place to place trying to get out of this situation rather than allowing God to do what he needs to do inside it. And along the way, if you try to tame God, yeah, he'll show up. He'll wrestle with you, but he will never overpower you. It's still going to be your decision. And you won't be able to tame him by some contract you come up with. But here, here is the fourth and final, the climactic point of this message. God has to wrestle us into a transformed life rather than comfort us into a transformed life. He has to wrestle us. Now, let's finish this story. Such a good story. When did Jacob discover who it was he was wrestling? In verse 28, the cat is out of the bag. Then the man said, now who's the man? That's right. Okay, make sure you know. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. At the beginning, Jacob didn't know who he's wrestling. At the end, he now knows. But when did the penny drop? When did Jacob the wrestler realize he's wrestling God? And the answer is the blinders fall off in verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Now, in the Hebrew language, this word for touched his hip is the slightest little touch. It's like bing. Just, whoo. By the way, if I could just say something here, it's kind of related, but not really. You know, I love basketball, but I hate flopping. You know what flopping is? I hate that in the game. And it's getting worse. It's when a, it's when a person in a game pretends like he got fouled and he just falls down, but no foul's been made. And it usually is to get a good player out of the game. They used to do that to me when I was in university, and I still haven't forgiven the guys who did that. It's a nasty, dirty way to play. I'm just simply saying that Jacob is not flopping here. He slightly touches, and suddenly Jacob realizes this guy that he's wrestling could have incinerated him at any moment. And suddenly the light comes on. And if you notice, at first Jacob is wrestling the man to free himself, but now he's wrestling the man to keep hold of him. What happened? Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. What? If he's wrestling Jesus, I mean, this is, like a, a, this is like an impala saying to a lion, let me go. Or a lion, rather, saying to an impala, let me go. Can you fathom that? No. And yet, Jacob, 
now is holding on, but not, not to try to get free. Now he's wrestling to keep the man who could incinerate him at any moment from leaving. What's going on? Well, first of all, notice that the change happened in his moment of pain and weakness. The transformation came when he's at the end of his rope. In other words, this is a God who wants to bless you. He wants to change your life. But to do that, he's got to bop you in the head. He has to wake you up to who you are and who he really is and what it is that you're really wrestling with. Every single one of us in the room knows this is true. We learn almost nothing in pleasure and everything in pain. It's the way it is. In other words, you know what the one word is weakness. In your weakness, you are made strong. In your weakness, you are made, God knows that. So in verse 24, Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. I love this because basically what the text says is a man Jacob with Jacob. Jacob's name means wrestling. So in the Hebrew, a man Jacob with Jacob. Somebody's out Jacobing Jacob. And now here he is. He thinks his problem, Jacob thinks his problem all of his life has been Esau. He thinks he's always been wrestling Esau for the birthright and the blessing. And he thinks if he can just defeat Esau, he thinks the climax of his life is tomorrow morning when he meets Esau in the valley. And while he's thinking that way, God shows up and says, no, the climax of your life is tonight. You think you've been wrestling with Esau all your life? You've been wrestling with me. I am the center of your struggle. You have a God-shaped hole in your life and you've been striving to fill it with the birthright, because you thought that would give you significance. With love for Rachel, you thought if you got the girl, your life would be okay. With wealth, if you could just outwealth Esau, then your life would have meaning. Listen, let me stop. Do you know what Jacob is? Jacob is a nominal Christian. Now, how many in the room, and at Rancho, and at Westco, and at Upland, how many of you know what a nominal Christian is? How many knows what that is? Okay. Putative. A nominative Christian is one that's in name only. That's Jacob. He talks to God. He believes in God. He seeks the blessings of God, but he doesn't know God. And until God knocks him on the head, Jacob's never going to get it. In verse 26, the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, here's how we know. I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, in the original language, here's what Jacob is saying. I will not let you go until you bless me with you. You see what he's saying now? Before the wrestling match, Jacob's attitude was, these are the things I need to want, God. I need you to help me get them. Suddenly, he's holding on to God for dear life, and he's saying, I will not let you go until you bless me, until you bless me with you. You. Folks, I've, in the last couple of weeks, I've done a couple of funerals and I've done, I don't know, it seems like I've done a million of those over the course of my life. Here's what happens when you, when you're a pastor and you do a lot of funerals, lots of funerals, there comes a time when you start to recognize patterns in people's lives and you've got the difference. And I'm, by the way, I'm not, um, I'm not using this illustration as a description of what happened over the last two weeks. The the fact that I did funerals jarred my memory, so I don't want anybody to misunderstand. But here's what I've noticed. There's a lot of families who are nominal Christians who speak all the Christian needs at a funeral. They're in a better place. Oh, we should be happy they're going to see their loved ones. But the more I'm around them in the reception and conversation, they have no idea who God is. Zero idea. 
and there's no relationship. You say, well, are you judging? Maybe a little bit. But I'm trying to discern something here. Because here's the difference I've noticed in people who speak the Christianese and people who have a relationship with Jesus. Those who have a relationship with Jesus, those who don't, those who are nominal Christians talk about, you know what? I'm going to go and see that uncle that I lost. I'm going to go and see that better place that's beyond. But those who are Christ followers, those who have a legitimate relationship with Jesus, you know what they talk about? The whole time, he gets to see Jesus. I'm going to see Jesus. Because they're in love. It's not some abstract idea to them. Heaven is the place where Jesus is, and whatever else is there, that's fine, because I'm going to see the guy that I've met, met and that I've known and that's walked with me through the storms of my life. And I've started to notice there's a difference. My father-in-law, Charlie Delaney, when he talks about heaven, gets tears in his eyes, and it's not about seeing his mother. I'm sure he wants to, but it's always about, give me Jesus. I get to see Jesus. Suddenly, Jacob's eyes are open, but only after God whacks him on the head. Jacob says, you're the beauty and the blessing that I've been looking for all my life. Your approval, your riches, your love and acceptance. And Jacob, you think about this, guys. Jacob is holding on to someone he now knows can incinerate him just like that. And he won't let him go. He's saying, I can't go back the way that it was before. Even if I see your face and die, I don't care. Nothing in my life is working. This is what I need. There's no way I'm letting go. Even if it kills me, I can't go back. If I don't have you, I have nothing. And then the pre-incarnate Christ says to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. Amazing. How does God reach us? In every phase of our lives, weakness. Weakness. But whose weakness? Whose weakness? Look carefully, verse 28 again. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome, you've prevailed. Now, I look at that. What? So, so the pre-incarnate Christ, God, stands over Jacob and says, winner, winner, chicken dinner. You're the winner. What? Jacob can't believe his life was spared. He's shocked that all he got was a blow that woke him up. How can God say to me, notice what... Uh, uh, Jesus says, basically, how can God say to me that I've been trampling over men, over God all of my life, and then look at me and declare me as the winner? Remember when a series called Archetypes or Origins? And Jacob? Jacob is an archetype? Oh, yeah. Because Jacob points to the ultimate place where God wins through losing. He triumphs through defeat. By losing willingly to Jacob, he transformed Jacob. When the man, God, saw that he could not overpower him. Now, in absolute terms, of course God could overpower him. He barely touches his hip and lames him for the rest of his life. And Jacob is going to walk with a limp. When my son Delaney was a little boy, he's not little anymore, but at one point he was a little boy. And he would love to wrestle. And as we wrestled, you know, I weighed 205 pounds. I could just kill him. He was a little boy at that point. And the only way that I could wrestle him was to, be, to make myself weak. And I'd put all my weight on my hands and knees so I wouldn't crush him. Do you see what God does here? God makes himself weak so that he fails on purpose to overpower Jacob. Had he overpowered Jacob, he could have killed him. That's not what God wants. 
God wants salvation, not annihilation. God came in weakness so as not to destroy Jacob, but to save them. In losing, God won. Had God won, he would have not gotten what God really wanted, a transformed heart, an awakening. God failed in order to win. Because he lost, he won. Is that not a pointer to the cross? Is that not a pointer to the gospel? What's the theological terminology? Philippians 2, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to death, even to the cross. So I have a few questions. Don't leave without these questions, okay? Number one, are you waiting for God to dazzle you? Here is the way God is going to dazzle you. The most powerful entity possible, the creator of all that is, allows himself, allows what he has created to destroy him, to defeat him. God allowed men to overcome him in order to save them. No man could ever come up with this. No way, only God. Hey, have you ever read Matthew 12? Just quickly, fascinating chapter. Jesus has just healed the blind and mute demon-possessed man, and he's healed a man with a withered hand. So he's been on a healing spree. And here's what the Pharisees say in Matthew 12, 38. Some of the Pharisees, teachers of the law, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. I just gave you signs. We want to see a sign. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now notice, it doesn't say anything in the, in the text about Jonah's, Jonah being spewed up after three days. No, Jesus says, here's the sign you're going to get. You're going to get the sign of weakness. The Son of Man is going to allow wicked men to kill him. The most powerful God will become weak. Why? Because you desired man's free love that he should follow you freely, enticed and taken captive by you. He bases his appeal on sacrificial love. The story of the gospel, folks, is one of weakness, which means the story of your life has to be one of weakness too. And when you are weak, that's when you become strong. Second question, are you waiting for someone else to fight the battle of your life? Your pastor, your friend, your relative, the most important events of your life, you're going to have to face alone. You're going to have to do your own business with God, which means he's going to have to wrestle with you. He's going to have to deal you a blow. He's going to usually have to clobber you in the head. He's going to have to wound you if he's going to ever hope to save you. So what you're going through right now, is it a wound from a God who's trying to save you? D.L. Moody, the great illustrator, American pastor, one time, his little granddaughter said, Daddy, why did Jesus have to die? And he said, well, sweetheart, would you rather the truck of God's justice run over you or the shadow of the truck run over you? She says, well, the shadow, of course, because it wouldn't hurt so much. And then he said, Jesus died so that he could wound you without destroying you. Jesus took the full measure of the justice of God so that he could come to you and wrestle you without annihilating you. Because you deserve to be annihilated. And so do I. But he comes in weakness because he's not after that kind of justice. He's after salvation and transformation. I'm almost finished here. And I want to kind of whet your appetite for Easter as we move toward this final archetype in Moses. 
Can I just remind you, during the course of your life, would you please do everything in your power to remember that God will have to clobber you to get your attention during the course of your life. But he, he will weaken himself. He doesn't want to destroy you. He doesn't want to end you. He wants to save you. He wants you to stand up and realize that only he can give you what you're looking for in every area of your life. And so he's going to clobber you in those areas until you get it, until you wake up. And you will feel weak, but in that weakness, you can become strong. And remember that because Jesus became weak, he too became strong. His power cleanses us from sin, transforms us. But remember what? Because Jesus became weak, he became strong. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen carefully. Therefore, when he clobbers you and you come to the end of yourself, and you realize what he's doing, if you humble yourself and allow yourself to be humbled by what he could do to you, in fact, what we all deserve, then you'll be drawn to God who weakens himself in order to save you, and then you will grab on to him and refuse to let him go until he blesses you. That's the gospel. And so, in verse 31, the sun rose in the beginning of the of Jacob's story, the sun, is, the sun is setting on him. It's the end of his life. But because he's been transformed, now the sun is rising. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. He's limping, but he's limping with a smile. The limp is a small price to pay for eternity. What do we want to do with this message? The way of the cross is the way of weakness. In the most difficult seasons of your life, when things aren't making sense, when you've lost somebody that you love, when you're facing a season of life when you would rather God take it away and you're frustrated because he's not, do you realize according to the gospel, according to the archetypes and origins, according to the apostle Paul, in your greatest moment of weakness is when you are in your greatest moment of strength. Because it's at that moment when God is going to do his best work in you to transform your heart. And when your heart is transformed, guess what happens? The anxiety, the depression, the fear, and all of that goes because now you've taken hold of something that is so indescribably filled with worth that nothing else matters. That's the gospel. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the story of Jacob. And I pray that our eyes would have been open to the way that you have to open our eyes sometimes. And that means a little bit of clobbering. We don't like it. We don't enjoy it. But I pray that we would remember that when you pursue us, you come in weakness, not wanting to overpower us, but wanting to wake us up to the reality that a God who offered his own son, who did not spare his own son, will surely give us all good things. And for those who invest in that personal relationship with you, we become so rich and life makes sense.
and life is worth living. And that joy that we're after becomes central and sorrow only peripheral. In Christ's name, we are grateful. Everybody said, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.